0: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly
1: about Squarespace. Did you know that you can turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace? Got time right now. What else are you doing? Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. And if you do get stuck, you won't. But if you do, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support right there to help Head to squarespace.com slash longform, you'll get a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff, Aaron Lammer. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hey, guys. What do you got for us? Nine out of 10. 9 out of 10, minus. Aaron's at a 9 out of 10 this week. That Just coming is,
2: straight with it.
1: I got to tell you, grand scheme of things, that's, that, that's disturbingly good. I'd like you to like lower that. I don't want
3: to ask her any questions about it, but I'm doing great.
1: Okay. Well, you know, that's, that's weird, but I guess I'll take it.
3: <laughs> uh, who's on
1: the show this week? This week on the show, uh, David Haskell who's the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine. You guys probably remember a couple years ago, I had uh, Adam Moss on the show, who was then the editor of New York Magazine, sort of legendary editor of New York Magazine. And last year, Adam stepped down, handed the reins to David. New York Magazine is the only place that David has ever worked. And uh, and he took it over. And it has been uh, a pretty intense time, I would say, in his 13 months running the place. Uh, New York Magazine got acquired by Vox. We talked about that and what it's like to be part of this larger place. He just had to furlough a bunch of employees in the midst of uh, COVID. And we talked about that. And we also talked about just like what it is like to be an editor-in-chief in 2020, what that means, like what that job actually is and what it means going forward and how you manage a team of people when everyone's working remotely It was a, it was a good conversation. He's very, uh, he's very thoughtful about all of it.
2: I have a little behind the scenes factoid for long time, long form podcast listeners. Love those. David Haskell also on the side owns a uh, whiskey distillery uh, here in New York City. I got married at that distillery, officiated by Max Linsky. Thanks for that, Max. Hey,
1: hey, I'm still a man of the cloth. If anyone wants me to officiate their weddings, I'm here and for it. People
3: you. say the Illuminati is not real.
1: <laughs> I genuinely mean that. I really liked officiating that wedding. I'll officiate anyone's wedding. If you want me to officiate your wedding, just call me. I'll
3: I, uh, if I were to describe Max's character, uh, officiant at a wedding would would be uh, one of the ways I would describe it.
1: Yeah, I gave a toast at your wedding too. I'm,
3: I'm here <laughs> for all. I'm here for all your wedding needs. Your experience. The of this story. You're yeah. You're you're not gonna let people down. You're not gonna come unprepared.
1: No, I'm going to try hard, and uh, I'm going to come with some heart. You're in the so practice. Co- come with some vigor.
3: Of of hosting. I understand, <laughs> yeah. I
1: understand where you're going with this. I'm also a, an internet ordained minister. I, I forget what my title is, but uh, it means a lot to me. You guys, I have one more thing to uh, to, to plug. I got a plug. You got something to plug? I got something to plug. Plug it. Uh, launch a new podcast on Monday. It's called Wind of Change. It's uh, hosted by Patrick Radden Keefe. Multiple time long form podcast guest, friend of the pod, uh, friend of the pod, friend of the pod, and uh, Patrick and I and a bunch of people at Pineapple Street and Crooked and Spotify and all these places have been working for a year on this podcast, uh, which has a very simple question at its heart, which is, do you guys know the the song "Wind of Change" by the hair metal band the Scorpions? Of course, familiar with it. Patrick heard a rumor from someone within the CIA that that song was written by the CIA. So the whole show is trying to figure out whether wind of change this 80s power ballad about freedom and democracy was actually written not by a german hair metal band but by the cia it's a pretty fun show
3: if you are as obsessed with something as patrick raden has been with this song then you should start a newsletter about it there are newsletters about everything out now Some of them shockingly highly subscribed, in my opinion. Uh, A lot of the best ones are through MailChimp. They are our sponsor. Uh, We use their services. Tons of other businesses do. Uh, Check them out. Thanks to them, MailChimp. And
2: now here's Max with David Haskell.
1: David. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on this podcast.
1: Where, uh, where are you in the world right now?
2: I am in Shelter Island right now, about two hours from the city. And, you know, honestly feeling kind of guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be the editor of New York Magazine and not being in the city. Tried it for a while. My husband and I live in a one-bedroom apartment, both Zooming all day long. And it just felt like a problem that we should fix.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you went to like a very appropriately named place.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's literally an island and you have to take a ferry to get on here and everyone's very careful about everything. So it feels especially isolated in good ways and bad ways.
1: How How has it been for you to be um, editing a magazine about life in New York City while not currently living a life in New York City?
2: I mean, the main thing is it's been kind of thrilling. Like it's <laughs> such a... Such an intense story that, especially over the last six weeks, you were really telling both a local story and a national international story. And work is bizarre, and personally, I just find myself missing the social creative aspect of the job and and it's you know amazing how much you can get done on Zoom and then you also just sometimes feel like you're you're missing some of the joy of magazine making.
1: Do you feel like the magazine is worse because you guys are not in the same place? Like, does that translate to quality or is it just like um, more fun to make it in an office with people?
2: Well, it's definitely more fun. You know, I I think the magazine has been great these last couple months. <laughs> I, mean, <right. laughs> I know what you're not you- supposed to say that, but, and I think it's 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 a lot harder and I hope that effort doesn't, translate to the reader. I hope the reader is just impressed by the ambition and drawn to the stories that we're telling, you know? Like, I I hope that plays. You know, we're all in this scramble and very aware. It reminds me a lot of the Hurricane Sandy issue that New York Magazine put together in a remote office, scrambling over the course of three and a half days, landed on an iconic cover and an iconic issue That was what the first issue felt like. And now we're just, you know, months into this analogy and it's feeling not quite the same. But there's still in there this sense that we will never forget this moment and everybody's working so hard to meet it with New York Magazine's point of view and sort of mission.
1: It's interesting that you say that, like about everyone working so hard. What's it like being the boss right now?
2: I spend a lot of time... Recently, I've been spending a lot of time worried about burnout for the whole crew. Like New York Magazine is this very tight-knit group of editors, writers, designers. We are able to just sort of intuit, I think, how hard to push each other. And it is that kind of sort of generous pressure, I would say, regularly. And I am so focused on proving to ourselves that we can meet this moment with the amount of ambition and journalistic excellence that we can muster. Like that is really what I'm focusing on. And then I just worry sometimes that it's only part of the job. And there's a lot of talking to my colleagues who are incredibly fatigued, incredibly nervous, and to be suddenly sort of translating the state of the company and the company's strategy and future to the New York Magazine team is something that I'm trying to do as best I can, but it's really, it's a tricky part of the job.
1: What's the balance of your time between those two
2: things? Like
1: how much time is managing people in this, in so many ways, sort of like completely impossible moment and how much of your time is trying to make the magazine as great as it can be there's a way that those things are obviously related to, but then there's another part of it, which is like, in some way, those things can be intention, right? And so how do you think about managing those two?
2: They're more often in sync than intention, honestly, that part of it. When I think about the pie chart of my day, there's, um, there's a part of it that I feel like suddenly I'm a media exec, and I've never been that before, and that's a really interesting kind of like, feel like I'm auditing a a grad school class of some sort and very, you know, I'm just in a kind of privileged position to be part of the Vox Media team plotting out our strategy going into this very uncertain time. Then though, there's, and that's maybe a third of my time, but then the other two thirds is with the New York Mag staff. And the core thing that I'm focused on is making sure we are all putting enough rigor to the question of how this current issue of the magazine that we're putting together is going to be. We're putting on a play every two weeks and you're going through rehearsals to dress rehearsals to tech rehearsals. It's just like, you know, an event. And then just as much of my brain is doing the quote unquote, doing the digital journalism. But what I mean by that mostly is working with the top editors on the sites, you know, so as you know, New York Magazine is both a bi weekly print magazine and digitally, we publish The Cut, Vulture, Intelligentia, The Strategist, and Grub Street. And so when I'm working with editors who are primarily digital editors, it's a lot about sort of coaching and thinking through coverage questions in a sort of strategy way. But it's a different kind of relationship than with the magazine. And I'm so grateful to have the kind of practice or a mantra kind of a, a, like the making of the magazine can be very procedural. It's rigid. You read things a million times. You have to write a poem on the cover every two weeks and you just spend hours thinking about the correct five words. Um, There's something very kind of pure about that work that I find grounding and I think helps the sort of overall journalistic enterprise plot its future.
1: I I have a lot of thoughts after that. That I mean <laughs> that was a really long answer and I don't know it sounds like your job is very frenetic but it also sounds like where you gravitate toward is the like bi-weekly you know event you're staging and I wonder just hearing you talk about like the deck on the cover and stuff like does that feel nostalgic to you that kind of magazine making?
2: No. It just feels so, it actually truly, it feels so urgent. Help me understand why it feels urgent. Well, you know, it's like, it's an interesting thing to be editing a print magazine, especially doing so at a magazine that I think has pretty successfully become a digital magazine. It has 67 million people reading it last month and a few hundred thousand print copies. So obviously our readership is digital and we are making a digital magazine. But the fact of the print magazine is kind of the key to the whole thing. To have a cover, for instance, to just start there, that is our shot twice a month to get your attention and to say something that lasts or provokes, that's like a an opportunity that I am so grateful for, you know, like... I was looking at the last few covers that we did and the one that we did most recently just had four words on the cover, rich Corona, poor Corona. And then it had a deck actually, who lives, who dies, who thrives. And to me that, of course, a lot of people were talking about inequality and the virus, but we were able to, I think, sort of hijack that conversation and say, here is a considered, emphatic, curious somewhat mischievous, but with real ballast consideration of this question. That to me is like what a print magazine can do. And I would say that it's, it punctuates the churn. Like there is so much content available for you to read. I don't know if you are dying for more on the antibodies and the serums and the scientists, or you're overwhelmed by that material, uh, or, or go back and forth over the course of a day. But to have it all accessible on your phone all the time as one interesting article after another is is modern media. And there's some great work going on everywhere about like in that world. What I think is urgent about the magazine is that it just forces a break and a theatrics to the journalism. Yeah. And it's a disappointment if it doesn't quite land. But what you're always trying to do is use this toolbox to make something that like breaks the churn.
1: That makes sense to me that like they can just break through. Like it happens, it happens a tremendous amount with you guys. It happens with the New Yorker sometimes, you know, where like the covers themselves sure. go viral, you know?
2: You know, absolutely. But also, a certain kind of magazine, not all magazines, but a certain kind of magazine developed over decades, a system and an infrastructure and an economy and a culture of long form. I mean, a way of making an ambitious piece of writing that is more carefully wrought than an average newspaper piece and is more current than a book. And we, you know, since I've been in the job I guess, 13 months now, have taken that system that we just now call the enterprise system of storytelling and applied it across all of the sites and not just the print magazine. If we didn't have the print magazine, you know, I'm sure we're all smart and have taste that is New York Magazine taste. And I'm sure we would sort of approximate a plan for publishing features. But for us, at least, to know that the Project of features editing is a magazine project, even if it's being applied to an article that we know will isn't scheduled to be in the print magazine, has really kind of upped our game. I think
1: that's come through. I mean, it feels to me like over say perhaps the last 13 months, there have been many more features across the five sites than there were previously, even as the magazine has shifted its production schedule. That was, you know, when it was announced that it was going to go from weekly to biweekly, my big fear was like, does that mean we just get like uh, half the features now?
2: Yeah, that was our fear too.
1: (laughs) Right, and it feels like actually there's like some multiple of the features. And there was in my head this kind of tiered system for the features across... The sites were just like, wait, is this going to be one of the magazine ones? Or is this, like, not one of the magazine ones? If it's one of the magazines ones, like, I'll sit up in my chair and make sure that I read it, you know? And, um, and now I feel like it's diffused in this way that it's like Caroline Calloway, I think, wasn't in the magazine? Correct. Which has got to be, like, one of the more memorable pieces under your tenure for sure, right?
2: Yeah, and one that took about seven months of editing and a dozen drafts. You know, that was... Edited as carefully as a print magazine story. So I think it's a really good example of what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to spend a bunch of time sort of parsing, like, why does something go in the magazine? Why does something not go in the magazine? Because I like, but the thing that I am interested in is what role you think that kind of journalism has for the place overall and like that sort of doubling down of that ambition. Digitally, I think is really interesting. And it maybe you could help me understand how that fits from an yeah. audience perspective and from a business perspective. Like most people are not investing in that stuff at the moment.
2: Yeah. You know, like structurally, New York Magazine launched a digital subscription a couple years ago. And we are, as of about six months, part of Vox Media. And we are the only real part of Vox Media that has a business model built around consumer revenue. What that means is that it's on us and on me to make a magazine that, and when I, I say magazine, and I mean digital and print all the time, but to make a magazine that is worth paying for and to make good on the bet that not every magazine can be saved. The magazine industry overall probably can't be saved by the digital subscription business, but a few of them have a shot. I do think New York Magazine is one of them. It's given me more room to sort of make the case internally to myself, feel good about an investment in features, because you know that it's one of the things that makes people subscribe. You know, another area that I've invested pretty significantly in is photography. And that's also, kind of a hard thing to justify, especially was in the sort of the most crass years of the sort of Facebook shared digital media ecosystem. Um, it's nice to talk about that in the past tense. Well, it is. It, it's a diff- it's a shift. Like scale to us is one aspect of the goal, but there or one goal, but a quality relationship with. A good number of of readers who like you so much they're going to pay for it. That's another goal. And it's really good for journalism. It's really good for at least the magazine that I want to make.
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put David on hold for a second because we got some uh, sponsors And I want to tell you about them. But the first thing I want to tell you is that it's time. It's time to turn your dream into a reality. And I recommend you do it with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking for, uh, I don't know, start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, whatever you want to do with an internet website, Squarespace is the tool for you. They've got beautiful templates designed by world-class designers, and you have the ability to customize just about anything you want. All it takes is a few clicks, and you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. They got other stuff, too. They got powerful e-commerce functionality. It lets you sell anything you want online. And they've got analytics, so you can grow your site in real time. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box, so there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. It all just kind of works. Plus, you can buy domains with Squarespace. It's super simple. And if you do hit a snag, you won't. But if you do, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. And now it's your turn. Head to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's squarespace.com slash longform. Offer code long form. Thanks so much to Squarespace. Thanks also to Literati. We told you about Literati for the first time a couple weeks ago. It's a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids. You might actually be able to hear my kids right now, they're right outside this room. Uh, Anyway, Literati delivers great stories straight to your doorstep. Books. To your house. And you know, reading books together it will help create a time of adventure and bonding for your family. It's also got obviously real educational benefits. Kids who read books have better vocabularies, longer attention spans. And right now, you know, there's not much else that we should be doing with our kids than just sitting and reading with them. Each literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art. And plus, they've got a personalized note for your kid in there, which Uh, when our box showed up, I gotta tell you, it was nice. He doesn't get a lot of mail and he was hyped. You only have to keep your favorites. You send back the books you don't want for free. And that means you're only paying for the books your kids love. Uh, again, we got it. And, uh, and my kid kept all five of course. Uh, but you know, it it really is. It's, it's a nice thing to have uh, some new books show up in the mail, give you something to do with the kids in this moment, and and also to give them something uh, with their name on it. It's just, it's really nice. So for a limited time, go to literati.com slash longform. You'll get 25% off your first two orders. It's their best offer available anywhere, only for our listeners. To get it, you have to go to literati.com slash longform for 25% off your first two orders. Again, that's literati.com. Slash long form thanks to them for sponsoring the show and let's get back to David how many slots do you think there are available for magazines that can make it on that model
2: I don't know I, it's easier for me to think how many slots are available in my own, how many passwords do i am i going to remember and subscriptions do i really feel comfortable with if i've got the times and i've got netflix and i've got spotify and i've got a handful of magazines how many of them i don't know that's a pretty brutal sort of personal economics that we're up against to make the case that we deserve to be in that little bundle the flip side of that question is just how many magazines can find enough people to do that and you know i think some magazines cost 100 times as much as other magazines. And so I think we'll just get to a place where, you know, my hope is that there's a thriving indie magazine world, there's a thriving middle circulation magazine world. And there's probably only a few that can survive in the a million or or more subscribers world.
1: Yeah, I think that that's part of what I was asking about is just one of my fears is that you know, basically what's happened with the times is what's going to happen with magazines, which is like, it's really working for the times and it's really not working almost anywhere else in daily newspapers. It means working for the post too, right? It's like, there's like a couple places where it's working, which are the ones you would assume if it was going to work for anyone it would work for, but it's really hard to scale that model down and you see it in local journalism everywhere. Right. And so I just wonder whether the same thing is basically true for magazines that like, you know, the New Yorker and New York Magazine and a handful of others will be able to make that shift. But there aren't many, aren't many slots, you know?
2: Yeah, I I worry about that too. Like, I worry about that as a, just a kind of civic minded journalist, but I also worry about that in my position. Like, can I make it into that little club? Can we? You know, and New York Magazine's always had this interesting tension of being serious and not being spectacularly good some decades and kind of not some other decades being essential and being kind of tawdry. And I love that dynamic, but it's really, it's a lot of pressure. or I feel a lot of pressure to ride that wave correctly. It's a particular push and pull and the fun of it, but also it's it's a vulnerable place to be.
1: How do you think you're doing? Uh,
2: I think that I, <laughs> I think I'm doing okay. You know, I was so scared about this job when it was offered to me. I inherited the position from Adam Moss, who's just superb editor and mentor and friend. And none of us working for Adam really could imagine the post-Adam world. And I just was so nervous this time last year. I started May, uh, April 1st. And I, I do think that now I feel like I know what the job is. And, you know, one thing that I appreciate, it's kind of perverse, but one gift in a way has been the relentless news cycle. There's just been so much that we've covered over the last 13 months. Jeffrey Epstein, impeachment, and, you know, obviously now this, the world's completely changed. It makes the learn on the job aspect of the job go faster.
1: It's a crazy run of news to have to navigate. But I assume in some ways that does kind of make it easier. It's like, A, there's a lot to deal with. And B, all of that doesn't leave a lot of time for like um, worrying about it. Like you just kind of have to do the thing, right?
2: Yeah. You just kind of have to do it. And, you know, the thing that I'm always worried about getting wrong or not getting right is, I guess the word is innovation. You know, there's a like a certain kind of successful, you look back in the month and think, oh, we've done a bunch of stuff that's worthwhile and well executed. What keeps me up often is, is it specifically us? Did we do something unusual here? Did we push in a direction that was a little scary, but was differentiating? You know, I don't know whether we've done that enough. Um, I
1: feel like there's an or there. Like, is it that thing or is it something else? What's the other possibility of what it could be?
2: Well, I guess what I'm saying is that you can do something that's pretty good, but you might also have read it on The Atlantic. Or you can do something that's kind of... Great but also kind of a total misfire, <laughs> but it was definitely New York magazine. <laughs> and the thing that I just want to keep pushing ourselves and myself, and I'm not sure we're doing it enough right now is you know the latter is just taking those kind of weird risks, mm-hmm. you know because like the thing about New York is that we're if we're not taking risks in our coverage, then what are we doing? like we've got no sort of commercial pressure to put a safe cover out, you know, make a great cover. Like there's no one calling me up and saying to tone down this cover. Like none of that exists. It's just, it's like little basically like artist collective that's trying to respond to the news 24 hours a day. And I I just want to make sure that we're always doing it with confidence. I guess that's another another way of talking about it.
1: Is that freeing or... Terrifying or both?
2: Um, Well, yeah, it's both. But it, it really is, I mean, it's freeing. It's just that like your standards are so high. So it's always like, you know, did we get this last cover right? I think we did. It was really scary how late in the game it came together. We decided to take a look at college. And in particular, the sort of excruciating dilemma that a lot of students have right now whether or not to defer they have until the end of may many of them to put their deposit down for fall semester or not and a lot of them are at home taking some zoom classes and otherwise just feeling completely robbed of their college experience and aren't sure what to do and from the college and administration point of view it's sort of an existential crisis so anyway that was that's the subject and we just went through so many different tones of um, how to express that on the cover, and it came together really late. And I was just having trouble sleeping, you know, just thinking about what if we bond this cover? Like, what? Oh God! Wouldn't that just be a downer? So that you know, that's the terrifying thing.
1: Is that like a every two week experience for you? Like, do you feel that way about all of them?
2: Uh, yeah, I feel that way about all of them. Like you're not going to get a perfect success rate. There's a range. You look back at covers and have different feelings about them. But the process of making every one is incredibly emotional, for me at least.
1: And that emotional piece of it, is that brand new since you got the job? Or did that manifest in other ways before you had the job? Like, were you that way about whatever your chief responsibility was before you were the the editor-in-chief?
2: Yeah, I guess I was sort of that way. I mean, the main thing that I did for my whole run at New York magazine, even though I was also doing other things, was editing features. And I would say 12, 15 times a year, I would be walking home after the finally closing. Like the the image just came that just came to mind right now was um Dan Lee's a writer I worked with, and I know has been on here before. Dan wrote every piece that Dan wrote was an emotional experience. And he wrote a devastating piece about a fire in Stanford. And I walked out of the office and I was just, I just so wanted it to be everything it could be. And how we got there was so, you know, like we're crying, we're sweating, we're like staring down sentences and, And I just remember the release of walking out of the office and knowing that it had shipped. And then I saw a fire truck passing lower Manhattan. I just, something like shifted in my organs kind of, you know? (laughs) And anyway, so like editing features is always that intense. And I, you know, was at the same time I was doing that, jumping into a million other areas of New York Magazine always. And so one thing I've really appreciated is, just being kind of spastic and having a attention span that is, well, on the one hand, like you can burrow into a Word doc, but then you get to get up and talk to a bunch of people about a bunch of problems and fun ideas, and it switches between a fun time and a serious time.
1: How come you never wrote?
2: I've never felt the urge I mean, basically, that's true. I thought for a minute I would be an architecture critic. And when I was in graduate school, I was studying architecture to do that and doing some writing. But I didn't really trust my takes (laughs) and thought that there was something missing between just being fluent in the world of architecture and actually having something to say. Um, So I stopped. And then in the world of magazines, to me, it's just an entirely different personality. I get that there are people out there that are writer editors. I work with some of them. It's kind of amazing to watch. I don't see it in myself. I mean,
1: it's interesting that like, you're basically like, yeah, I was trying to do this when I was in grad school. I just wasn't good enough. Like, no one's good enough in grad school. Isn't that the whole idea?
2: Oh, yeah, no, I just meant like, it. I felt like a kind of disorientation. Like, it felt not me. You know, I've tried to write diaries and that doesn't work. And I don't know. I I really just the interesting thing to me about magazine making is that you're kind of gathering a dinner party or curating a museum show or putting on a play or casting a movie. Like you get to bring voices together, sharpen them, pull things out of them. It feels expressive, but you're not the main attraction.
1: And that was really the thing that you always wanted to do. Like you started a magazine in grad school and like that idea was the thing that got you going.
2: Yeah, that idea was the thing. The magazine I started was called Topic and it was really just like a quarterly that took one fairly broad topic at a time and its whole conceit was in who was invited to write about their lives. And we found very unusual lives and mostly non-professional writers and helped them write their pieces and put together this kind of collection of memoirs, basically.
1: So walk me through how you got from like starting a magazine in Cambridge to ending up in New York Magazine, where you've now been for a long time. And maybe we're not at a lot of places before that. Like, I feel like people move around. Yeah, mag-
2: no, that's that's my whole career in magazine. That's the whole I thing. I started a magazine, and then I started working at New York Magazine.
1: <laughs> like, one move.
2: Yeah. I um, When I was editing this magazine topic, at first it was in graduate school in England, and then we brought it to New York City. And there were about, at some point, about 15, 20 people who were kind of, I guess, on the masthead, who were editing it with us. We all had other jobs. It didn't pay any of us, but it was a community. You know, many of them are still magazine editors. I, one of them, Stella Bugby, I work with on a daily basis and have an incredible long relationship with because of originally because of Topic. But anyway, it was also an opportunity for me to meet various editors and just say, "Hey, look at this magazine. Tell me what you think of it." One of them was Adam Moss. first when he was at the Times Magazine, and then. We stayed in touch when he went to New York, and it took a couple years for it to make sense. But I did a sort of editing special project with him and then realized, oh, God, I need to I need to have a boss. I need to have a regular experience making magazines. Making my own magazine is too infrequent because we have to raise money each time for another issue. And, you know, like there's something exciting about being in the big leagues and, and learning how to do this. So Adam hired me in a sort of hybrid role of features editing and doing culture editing. And then it both evolved and didn't over the years. And the magazine evolved and didn't over the years. I mean, a few months after I was hired, the economy crashed. Uh, Bruce Washerstein, who had owned the magazine, died. His children became more involved. And eventually, Pam Washerstein came in as CEO. And eventually, she was the one who chose me to be the next editor-in-chief. And then. She was the one over the last year who found us a new home at Vox where she's now the president. So anyway, I've had this long relationship with her. The magazine went from weekly to bi-weekly, as you said. That felt at the time borderline crisis, borderline existential. Could New York Magazine exist if it didn't come out every week? Would that permanently destroy the thing that we are? Was a real worry for us.
1: My impression from the outside, and this is not very informed, but my impression from the outside is that there's been this sort of like these two realities around New York magazine for a long time. And one of them was the magazine was great. And it seemed like that everything was going really well. And also there was this like slight crisis all the time around the business and like there are rumors about sales and Or just kind of like real uncertainty, you know?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that that's a function of the 21st century. Totally. Um, And being a small family business was scary at every iteration of the digital transformation. I don't think that if Adam and Pam, if they hadn't committed as strongly as they did to finding a digital expression and being relevant as a digital magazine, there's no way we would still be here. You know, and yet, like, there's been a lot of continuity and stability. Many of the people that show up in my Zoom grid on Monday morning have been at the magazine for more than 10 years, more than 15 years, one of them more than 25 years. That's a pretty rare thing to have in media in 2020. A lot of institutional memory and sort of interrelational memory. And I mean, I think it's just so useful to be able to point just like on Friday, we were, what were we talking about? There was some article that we were looking to assign and we were talking about different ways in, and I was just able to sort of shorthand refer to a piece that we published in 2009 that most of the people on the call remember even were around for and be like, oh yeah, right. That, that, That sort of combination of writer and angle is what we're talking about here.
1: Did you, uh, did you always want that job?
2: Was that the goal? No, I was like, yeah, no, that it seemed to me that it was just a recipe for disaster to take over from Adam to take over a magazine that is sort of running at peak form and always sort of punching above its weight. And as you say, like anything could happen any minute, I really appreciated Adam's career arc, where he was able to leave the Times for a magazine that was kind of in a bad spot, but he saw how to renovate it. It was kind of a clunky building, but he saw. Yeah, there wasn't
1: there wasn't like a lot of juice at New York Magazine when he took it over.
2: It was really the the fault of the owners at the time. It had just been stripped for parts and was running, being run very cynically. And so what Adam had was Bruce, who had bought the magazine and said, I think this could be something I'm really proud of. And he went shopping for the best editor and he told the best editor, spend some money to make this thing great again. And Adam looked at the first decade of New York Magazine of, you know, Tom Wolfe and Milton Glaser and Clay Felker and Gloria Steinem and said, that is the DNA of this thing that is incredibly relevant to right now let me basically try to bring that back so i would say adams two big accomplishments were to do that and then to say really early on like 2004 2005 2006 2007 to say wait a minute we're we're particularly well suited for digital journalism for the internet the way the internet sounds is actually kind of the way new york magazine sounds or sort of a sound that New York Magazine invented in 1968, 69, 70. Like there's something, there's an opportunity there that we really need to embrace, even though it's scary. So, so th- he
1: took over New York Magazine when it was lagging, but but was about to have a bunch of money thrown at it. And you took over New York Magazine when it was soaring and financially a little up in the air.
2: Right. What a um, recipe for disaster.
1: And that, so that wasn't like a thing that you were sitting there hoping was going to happen for a long time?
2: No, I just told myself I don't want that. And so I started to, in the last couple years, think, well, so what do I, like, what is the next step here? <laughs> and, um, you know, I I love a certain kind of magazine, but I I don't want to work in magazines if it can't be that certain thing. So I was thinking, like, you know, maybe maybe the world of magazines isn't for me. And I, know I was just really starting to have a, a kind of broader conversation with myself about what the next stage would be.
1: Go back and become an architecture critic.
2: Uh, <laughs> 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 but also, Adam, Adam surprised everybody by, by deciding not to do it anymore. It wasn't in anyone's head that suddenly this job would be open. Certainly wasn't in my head.
1: I spent a long time talking to him about doing the job. I don't know, maybe eighteen months before he announced it, or something like that. It was really fun to talk to him about it, and he was just so connected to the sort of like pleasures of magazine making. (laughs) You know, Uh, it was real, like real religion for him. Do you feel? Does it feel the same way to you?
2: Yeah, it really does. I don't know why, like maybe because I absorbed it from him for almost 15 years. I I guess the thing that I feel like that I learned from Adam and sort of share with Adam and and I think is well suited for this particular magazine is a belief that there is something really fun about the world if you are able to like tweak your curiosity, to be really specific about your curiosity and like explore human weirdness. (laughs) Like that's like underlying so much of the journalism, even if it's about rich Corona, poor Corona. It's like the piece that we assigned on Steve Mnuchin was like, look at this guy. What a, (laughs) like, what a human so like there's a lot of pleasure in magazine making but that's kind of it's not really the magazine or it's not it's that's not just the building blocks of of story construction it's a kind of way of seeing the world where you're just like open to your own curiosity and you're kind of addicted to other people's curiosity you've got this little sensory thing where you notice that people are noticing things or curious about things and and then you like send in the troops and you're like we are going to Either answer this question or play in this sandbox and just f- be as literary as possible about the quotidian, about the front page of the times, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's really fun about the job, always.
1: What's the not fun part?
2: Well, for me personally, I get nervous thinking about how we might want to change how we do things mm-hmm. because i feel like i know how we do things i know how this car runs and i i'm gonna really enjoy driving it down this road for a minute or like rev it up or like i'm gonna play with this car but the thing that's um always been true about new york magazine is like it's always changing and I guess I could be answering this question in the other direction and saying this is one of the most exciting things. and But it is also really scary to think about the weight of reputation and the importance of consistency of voice and, I don't know, just the dangers of becoming flattened out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That's the thing that I worry about. And it's not fun to sort of wrestle with because it's, it's just a a scary demon out there.
1: So to what extent, when you think about that, about the car, and I guess there's another question in here, which is like, I don't know exactly how the car is transformed now that Vox owns it. Maybe it's just like the thing that holds the license plate in just says like Vox on it now or something, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Vox dealership. But how much of it is about like those kinds of big strategic moves? And then how much of it is about identifying the people both behind the scenes but also in particular the writers who will be the next group of those kind of period defining voices which i feel like the magazine if you track that like when was it great and when was it not so great one of the big Sort of like indicators is like can you just can you name who the writers were? you know, and I feel like they're these big bold face names right now, and one thing I wonder a lot about is like how do you find the next generation of those
2: people i mean that this is the like it's not fun, but it's also totally fun like this is actually the the high stakes pleasure of the job is thinking like, all right, who's our stable like how do you yeah, how do you bring our sort of collective voice into another chapter, another year, another month, even. It's always been New York magazine's strong suit, or maybe just the cards we were dealt that we develop talent. Like we're not really often in a position to go out and poach big names. We try to do it sometimes, it works sometimes, but um it's not a recipe, it can't be a recipe for me, or else you're just not gonna be able to get enough. So really what you're doing is cultivating is like having long-term relationships and long-term conversations with writers, including the youngest or newest writers on staff and thinking like, where do you want to go with this? And when's the right time to take a bigger assignment? Or yeah, you're getting pretty good at those 1800 word hangouts with an actor who you like what if you tried one with someone you really didn't like what if you did one of these that was entirely done through dialogue Mm -hmm. or told backwards to you know back to front that that kind of conversation I feel like you got to always be engaged in as an editor-in-chief with your existing staff because there's so much talent in the building and there's so much ambition and forward momentum that everybody feels you obviously can't make everybody a superstar but you have to be seeing their potential as clearly as possible what are the like
1: um raw ingredients in a writer that you're looking for to get in the door so before you start the like uh Haskell shaping process, like <laughs> what are you looking for when you go and try and get someone at the beginning? What are you looking for in a young writer? Is what I'm asking.
2: An earned confidence. I was going to say confidence, and then I I will preface it with an earned confidence. A voice. I mean, it's just true. Like it, it's a cliche thing to say, especially on this podcast. But it's just um, are people a pleasure to be around. The pleasure doesn't need to be, haha, funny. It doesn't need to be light. It can be excruciating. Like you know, it just needs to give me a sensory hit. I, I need an emotional charge off of your writing, and so you know, humor helps. A knowledge of history helps, especially, especially writers where maybe or in fields that maybe it's not as obvious. Like. There's a ton of culture writers out there in the world, writers about film out there in the world. How many have actually seen enough to have built a personal reservoir of wisdom? Like you can do that and be 26. You don't need it. I'm not saying like it needs to be a professor of film studies or something, but people have sort of put in the work, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying.
1: Is that what earned confidence means?
2: Yeah. That's the earned part, and then the confidence part is what allows you to find a way into an idea that is that sort of quickens the heart
1: and is that something that you can ascertain like just on the page, or is there something? That, you know, I mean, I don't know how the hiring works or whatever, or who gets a shot or how, or when it comes to you, but like, you know, if that 26 year old happens to get to your office, if we're ever back in offices again in the room, what, what is it that you're looking for? Or does that really not matter? Is it all about like what, how it feels on the page and whether there's that charge?
2: There's definitely a danger of putting too much stock in someone's performative talents Talking to a prospective boss, mm-hmm. uh, like that—that that is something, and it, it can translate sometimes into something else. Sometimes, but you got to be careful. But you know, like one thing that is pretty often true is nimble thinking can show up really quickly in a one-on-one conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like basically what I'm doing when I'm meeting potential new writers for the first time is just trying to watch how their mind works. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about. And I'm like, I'm not really ever asking a gotcha question, but it's just sort of like, all right, talk to me, keep just sort of wandering in that direction. And then what if I just threw this, I lobbed this like weird grapefruit that just landed (laughs) in your, you know, now you're thinking in this direction, Did, did that spook you? And by the way, sometimes spooking is like, okay, like very neurotic people are wonderful writers. But what comes from the spook? I'm just sort of just watching, watching your mind.
1: Have you found in any way, maybe with the sort of um, place that magazines are in in general, that the pool of talent, particularly with young people, is smaller than it once was? Like are fewer people who would be good at a whole bunch of things picking magazine writing?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, Especially once you call magazine writing internet writing also because there's...
1: I guess I'm talking about like features. You know, like the kind of people who are coming in and what they want to be doing is writing the kind of stuff that you were editing, you know, and the kind of stuff we were talking about.
2: Yeah, like there's some skills that are hard to get these days. Reporting is a big one. I think there's a lot of people with a lot of talent, but actually not much of a grounding in how you get information out, out of other people. And I think a lot of the classic magazine writers of the years, you know, over the decades worked in newspapers first and learned how that works. And, you know, it's just harder to do right now. The other thing that I found um, harder is to find people who are fluent features editors, people who know how to, like, construct long form, because that's... A relationship between a writer and an editor. And the writer doesn't need to know how to do it, really. <laughs> like um, sometimes a writer who knows how to do it so well is there's a risk in that. You're just sort of just paint by numbers making a, a piece. And you know, conversely, there's so much incredible journalism, especially that New York magazine has published over the decades, of very young or green writers writing long-form pieces that happens because you also have a system that knows how to sculpt that piece. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to learn how to do. It's a hard thing to do. And you really kind of only learn at a job where that stuff happens and it doesn't happen as much anymore. So, you know, when you when you think about like how, wouldn't it be just selfishly useful for the ecosystem of magazines to be stronger, that's one, area where my head goes
1: spoken like a true editor <laughs> i got one more question and then i'll let you go uh which is basically just like you know here we are in this moment you're managing this place 13 months into your tenure over zoom since you got the job the company's been sold and we're now in what looks to be you know the most significant economic downturn in 90 years you know there are a handful of prestige magazines in the world which means there are a handful of prestige editor-in-chief jobs in the world you're young to have one you know and you guys have done some furloughs and there's been some pretty tough moments for the magazine Just, you know, in the last eight weeks. And I just, this isn't a a very specific question. I just, I just wonder how it feels for you to be in this job in this moment. And I guess we've talked about it a lot and, and maybe it's connected to the car stuff, but I don't know. I just, uh, I wonder how it feels right now. Like to be, you're 40. Yeah. You're 40. You're running New York Magazine. New York Magazine is part of Vox those acquisition moments, you know, I mean, it sounds like that deal was about as good as those can be and obviously there's not much you can say but like, just a lot of, I don't know, man, There's a lot, there's a lot going on in that that stew, you know?
2: There's so much stuff going on. I mean, there's so many ways to answer that. Um, You know, I'm so impatient with this whole virus situation. I just want it to be over. I want to be back in the office with the, team making everything that we want, you know, like I have such sort of like drive and it's been difficult to sit in front of my computer and just realize that we can't do it all right now. And that actually the scramble is the best you can hope for. And your particular situation is literally the best you could hope for. Like there's not a magazine in the world I would rather be working at. There's truly not a corporate home in the world I'd rather us be. And I'm so grateful for the merger for a lot of good things and also precisely for the downside risk mitigation reason (laughs) of like...
1: Be a very different story for you guys right now, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, we are in a well-run modern media company that wants us there. And that is just a gift. What I feel is so much pressure to make good on it and sort of prove the value of the merger um, from the perspective of our Vox colleagues and say, yes, we say thank God for you in this COVIDian age. But I hope you also appreciate us because if we do our jobs right, we are a salve in a year of just horrific advertising, right? So like, I want to be there for the larger company and just demonstrate that, quote unquote, editorial excellence can be a business model. I really do think it can. And, you know, and I think very long term about this place. And there's nothing that feels creaky or old fashioned about the opportunity here for me. It's like New York Magazine should be able to tell the story of the world on and on and on and on and on. It's got a really durable recipe for how to do that in a way that audiences respond to. So, you know, there was at some point like um, 10 months ago, something made me think about three years ahead. I forget what it was. And I was like, oh yeah. I'm not just scrambling to figure out some answer to some burning question about a month from now. You know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we've got time here. You know, like you can't ever take that for granted, but it's, I think, fair to indulge a long-term perspective. More than fair, I think it's probably part of the job, for me at least to be sort of like plotting and dreaming years out and sort of fashioning the enterprise, the journalistic enterprise, the magazine towards that long-term vision as, you know, gingerly as you can without it breaking.
1: <laughs> Got to keep
2: putting some gas in the car. Yeah. <laughs>
1: everything boils down to a car metaphor, you know?
2: I like the car metaphor because I don't want to rebuild the car. Like, that's the thing that people have asked me over the months. Like, when are you going to do a redesign? And like, what's your new thing going to be, basically? And part of me is like, oh, just you wait. Like, new things will happen. I'm not doubting that they will. But I also don't, that's not, don't be looking for that. Like, I'm not looking to rebuild the car. I just want to, drive it well and drive it in interesting places and you know it's like we have a great staff so like let's how do we use the staff
1: well if the main reason that you were apprehensive about taking the job and the main reason you didn't realize that you wanted it until it was offered was about taking over for adam like how important is it to you now that people know who's driving or
2: that it's you driving. It's not that important to me. I don't think people look to magazines to have editors in chief that way anymore. And I definitely think there's a danger for anyone in in a position like this who creates such a public persona for themselves that it might divorce you from the work itself. So yeah, like it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, the, the thing that I would say, to be honest, like I, I'm sitting here in my quarantine, you're sitting in your quarantine and I'm thinking, what can I do? And, and we had the best subscription month in our history last month. And there's so much momentum to do more work to get people to subscribe. And I'm thinking, well, I'm the editor in chief. Maybe I should just like open up that Instagram account of 2 million people and do something. But I don't know what, I, I don't know <laughs> what it should be. And I'm honestly just toying with the idea of a, of a somewhat more public presence. Because I think actually, to some extent, it's important to do that in my position.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if your job is to drive subscriptions and have people connect with the place, like on some level, some people got to connect with you, right?
2: Yeah. Well, that's why I'm doing this on a Saturday night.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You called me. So, you know, the first step towards a a higher public profile is just letting me ask you about your feelings for an hour.
2: (laughs) It's felt very good, actually. To talk out my feelings.
1: Hey, David, thanks for doing this, man.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Marina Clemente. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Pit Writers, Literati, Squarespace. Thanks to all you guys for uh for making the show possible and thanks very much to David Haskell for taking some time, for uh for being candid about what it is like to be the editor-in-chief of a big magazine in twenty twenty during a quarantine. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, if you're looking for something to listen to, go check out Wind to Change. It's a new podcast by Patrick Radden Pineapple Street Studios. We did it with Crooked Media and Spotify. Uh, it's fun. It'll take your uh, it'll take your mind off stuff for a second. We'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run?